Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood, a retired submarine officer. I'm also a private pilot, martial artist, engineer, and a lifelong fan of science fiction and fantasy. I've written and published dozens of stories across the entire spectrum of speculative fiction. So sit back, let your mind wander through realms of adventure as I tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood back at you again with story time. This is episode 17. And just like the last episode, I'm going to this week take the, vi the audio from a YouTube video I did a few months back. This is one of the first videos I did, um, reading a short story of mine. I've been a little busy around here, so I haven't had a chance to really read a lot of them, Brighton, and you know, closing up New Year's holiday and all that stuff with the family. And beyond that, I'm expecting to have my audiobook rendition of my book, Glimmer Veil, ready here in the next week or two. Uh, and then we'll commence doing that chapter by chapter. That's a 30-chapter book. It'll take a good half a year. Uh, so we're working to square that away. Uh, in the meantime, here's this story. And next week, we'll come back with another one. And hopefully, uh, next couple weeks after that, we'll have a whole novel to go through. Either way, continue to give you good stories here, and hopefully you'll continue to enjoy it. Uh, thanks. Enjoy this one. And uh, hey, cut me a little slack. This one's a little rough. That's because I was pretty new when I did it. See ya. This is one of the first short stories I wrote. It's called Falling Softly. It's a short story of assassination and betrayal. And I figured I'd read it, see how this video turns out, and if it's any good... Maybe I'll put it out there and do some more. And we'll see what you guys think. Anyway, onward to the story. Through his sky black. So I screwed up in the first half sentence. How about that? All right, let's start again. Through his spyglass, the assassin watched Lord Padmar disembark his carriage. He was dressed in his best, a dark red coat with gold buttons, loose about the shoulders and tight at the forearms and belly. An off-white ruffled shirt with lace at the throat and cuffs, tight black leggings that tucked into polished knee-high black turned-down boots, and a golden sash from right shoulder to left hip. He wore a jaunty hat of the same color as his coat and a broad leather belt that supported a gold-pummeled saver on his right hip. Rumors said he actually knew how to use it, a rarity among the upper mobility these days. The lord strode quickly to the front of his manor, where his chamberlain waited. In his late middle years, the chamberlain was tall, but portly, with thinning gray hair. He stood with a pronounced slouch, probably from the lifetime he spent bowing and scraping. The lord spoke with him briefly before he went inside, not bothering to acknowledge the other servants' deep bows. The chamberlain lingered for a moment. He looked around, his back to the other servants, then nodded, and touched the right thumb to the lip, tip of his middle finger, and raised both to the center of his chest. That was the signal. All was in readiness. The assassin smiled thinly. Lord Padmar was well known as an overbearing, sanctimonious, and cruel employer. Among the servant class, tales of the punishments he doled out for the smallest infractions were legendary, leaving only the most desperate willing to even entertain the notion of going into his service. The Chamberlain was immune from the worst of these punishments, but all the same it was ridiculously easy and cheap for the assassin's representative to obtain his cooperation in this night's hit. 
Lord Padmar, it turned out, was a man of habit. The assassin had been watching him for three weeks and knew his routine by heart. Tonight was his weekly card game at Viscount Ephraim's estate. The Lord always returned promptly at four bells and was in bed by five. Padmar's wife found her own entertainment on this night each week. She had a lover in a manor outside the city. It strained credulity to think that Padmar didn't know, but clearly he didn't care. Most weeks a high-priced companion was ushered in through a side door before he arrived and awaited him in his bedchamber. Perfect. Putting down the spyglass, the assassin slithered back from the roof edge. Careful to avoid showing a silhouette, he rolled behind one of the many chimneys atop the building. Vargas was there waiting. Clad the same as the assassin in loose-fitting black clothing that covered him from head to toe except for his eyes, he carried a longbow and a full quiver, a long-bladed knife was sheathed on his left thigh. All set? The assassin nodded quickly. I'm going in. Keep a sharp eye out. I always do. With that, Vargas slipped down the chimney, flattening himself along its side. From the distance, it would be impossible to pick him out from the chimney roof. The assassin slid backwards to the other side of the roof. At the edge of the building, there was a drain pipe that served to keep the flat roof free of clear water, of rainwater. Sorry. It was perfect for climbing, and in less than a minute, he had descended the forty feet to the street. He moved swiftly along the building's wall, keeping to the shadows. He paused when he reached the corner and pulled out a small mirror from a pouch on his belt, then extended it past the edge. The coast was clear. Slipping around the corner, he dropped to the ground and slithered beneath a series of open windows, only standing again when he reached the next edge of the building. Directly across the street was the fence marking the boundary of the Lord's estate. Ten feet high, made of wrought iron and topped with spear-like spikes, it wouldn't be much of a challenge. He checked the street with his mirror, then passed back, then pressed back, sorry. First time reading, as he spied a carriage moving toward him. Hardly breathing, he remained absolutely still. The lamplighter's guild had already made their rounds, and he, though he had broken the lamps on either side of the intersection earlier in the day, there was still more light than he would have liked. The carriage, a plain but well-crafted model with room enough for four in the back, passed slowly. The driver never looked away from the road, but the curtains of the open passenger compartment were open. If any of the passengers saw him, it would mean trouble, but the carriage never stopped, and after a few minutes it turned the corner and vanished from sight. The assassin checked the street again. If he was going to be undone, it would be in the crossing. The one in sight, it was now or never. He took a deep breath and sprinted across to the fence. A quick leap and he had a hold of two of the spikes. Pulling his feet up to the crossbar at the top of the fence, he hung there for a few moments. Then he heaved himself upward and over the fence. Tucking into a roll as he hit the ground, he came to his feet smoothly and waited, motionless. The Lord had guards who patrolled the fence line regularly. If the Chamberlain had done his part, they would be late turning over the watch and the assassin would have a window of a few minutes but he hadn't survived as long as he had in this business by assuming things would go smoothly. He listened carefully for a while, but there was nothing but the normal sounds of night creatures. Satisfied he was safe, he moved out. The manor house was about a hundred yards ahead, beyond a stand of trees and a manicured garden. He made the distance quickly, darting from cover to cover to avoid being seen. He approached the house from the side, where a large patio area was partially covered by a good-sized balcony extended out from the second story of the house. That balcony should lead to the Lord's chambers. The columns holding the balcony up were round, about a foot in diameter and smooth. 
he managed to shimmy up the one at the corner without too much trouble. As he peeked over the balcony railing, the assassin was gratified to see the double doors leading into the house. A well-crafted pair with large inset windows were ajar. The chamberlain had come through again. There were a couple of cushioned chairs on the balcony and a small table. The assassin was careful not to disturb them as he boosted himself over the railing. It wouldn't do to make any noise now. Creeping across to the door, he could see curtains drawn on the other side, blocking his view of the chambers within. The assassin crouched down in the doorway and slowly opened the door on his right the rest of the way. Good thing it opened outward. Slowly pushing the curtain aside, he peered into the room. His eyes, already well adjusted to the moonless night, picked out the details without too much difficulty. A large four-posted bed hung with mosquito netting set against the far wall. A small round table with two chairs was off to the left, and a large armoire rested against the wall on the assassin's right. Two closed doors were visible on either side of the bed. As he moved into the room, the assassin's soft-soled shoes barely made a whisper. He could make out two lumps in the bed and heard soft snoring from the left side. He approached the right side first. The woman was barely covered by the sheets. Even in the near blackness, the assassin could tell she was stunning. Well-curved hips, full breasts. Too bad what was going to happen to her. He reached into another belt patch and withdrew a small vial. Parting the mosquito netting, he unstoppered the vial and slowly, carefully, poured several drops of its contents onto the woman's open mouth. She surged slightly, and he froze. But she just turned her head and settled down again after a moment. He was gratified to see her swallow. The potion should keep her asleep for several hours. The assassin moved around to the bed to the Lord's side, restoppering the bottle and replacing it in his pouch as he went. As he parted the netting, he drew a long, narrow-bladed dagger from the sheath on his thigh. The assassin placed his hand over the Lord's mouth and his, and his eyes opened wide. The assassin gave him no time to struggle, though, stabbing him in the chest, neck, and belly. The Lord tried to scream at first, but the hand over his mouth allowed only a muffled groan that quickly became a series of gurgling coughs. He grasped at his wounds, but they were too many, and any one of them would have been fatal. It was over and under a minute, and the assassin removed his hand. He took a minute to clean up, pulling a rag from a pocket on his hip and wiping the blood from his gloves and clothing. It would do it all to leave a blood trail when he parted. When he was done, he put the rag back into his pocket and moved back to the woman's side of the bed. His last act before heading back out of the balcony was to place the knife in her hand and give her a gentle kiss on the forehead. The assassin was out of the room and across the manor grounds in less than two minutes. He took a course toward the fence a short distance from where he made his initial crossing, pulling his mirror from its pouch as he drew near. There was a large tree growing right up near the fence and a street lamp on the other side. Crouching against the tree, he angled the mirror to reflect the lamplight toward the chimney where Vargas was stationed. A moment later, he saw a brief flash from the next chimney. Vargas had struck flint and steel. One spark for all's clear. The assassin sped back to his initial crossing point and vaulted the fence in the same manner as before, then raced across the street. He met Vargas behind the building, just as the other man was finishing his descent of the drainpipe. Any issues? inquired Vargas. None. Let's go get paid. The pair ducked down a side street, still keeping to the shadows, and cut a zigzag course through the city. If they had missed someone seeing them, it wouldn't do to offer a direct route to follow. Behind his mask, the assassin smiled. This was their highest profile target yet, and the down payment alone was enough to live well for a year or more. 
The final payment promised to leave them in luxury for quite some time. Taking with what he'd saved from the other jobs, it might just be enough to get out of the business altogether. He wasn't made of stone. Sooner or later, he wanted to lead a normal life, start a family, that sort of thing, but on his own terms and certainly not in poverty. The assassin and Vargas reached the designated spot at Seven Bells. At the edge of the port district, <coughs> excuse me, the warehouse was smaller than most and saw only limited use. Real estate was too valuable in the city to just leave a building empty, but the rising trading power of Mirabor, 200 miles to the south of the south, had attracted a number of ships that used the port here. So sometimes the building was half full, sometimes it was nearly empty. That led the building's owner to let it out on occasion for less than legal dealings. The pair split up as they approached. The assassin headed for the back door while Vargas scaled the side of the building itself, again using a drain pipe. There was a stairwell from the rooftop to the upper level scaffolding inside the warehouse, and Vargas would take position there with his bow in case anything went wrong. Vargas almost never met directly with the clients. He had no mind for negotiation, and besides, just as when he was doing the job, the assassin needed Vargas to watch his back. There was no less danger here than in the Lord's Manor. In fact, in some ways, there was actually more. The back door was unlocked, and the assassin slipped inside without a sound. Inside, the warehouse was almost mostly open, except for some offices in the front. It was about one quarter filled with boxes for various sizes. For this evening's event, there was a table set up in the middle of the warehouse. The area was lit by a number of lamps, but all the windows were covered with heavy cloth to prevent the light from escaping into the streets. The assassin could see his employer sitting at the table, dressed as before in dark gray cowled robes and a black mask of a frowning face. Two guards stood behind him, a small chest between them. No one else was visible. No one else was visible. Again, sorry. Everything looked in order. The assassin walked up to the table. Stopping two paces away, he watched the three men warily. His employer spoke first. Is it done? The assassin nodded. Just as you asked. In the morning, the servants' guards will find the lord dead and put the blame on the woman. No one will believe the word of a whore, no matter how pride-priced. He shrugged his shoulders, adding, Too bad. Looked like she was good. Excellent. Your reward is well earned. Gomley, pay him. The guards of the employer's right nodded and fished a key out of his pocket. As he bent over to unlock the chest, he blocked the assassin's view of the second guard for a fatal moment. Gomley stood, a jingling sack in his hand, and the second guard reached behind his back, pulled out a small crossbow, pointed at the assassin, and pulled the trigger. Although a new trouble was possible, the assassin had begun to relax when Gomley went to the chest. Thus, he was surprised at the attack. Still, his reflexes were good, and he left to the side as soon as he saw the crossbow pointed his way. He was not fast enough, though. The assassin felt a crushing impact in his lower left abdomen, and he was knocked to the floor. Searing pain beyond anything he had ever felt filled his brain. He clutched at the wound, only to find that the quarrel had gone so far in that his head protruded out the small of his back. Vargas! Help! He wanted to shout the words, but nothing came out but a loud groan of pain. A whistling sound of an arrow's flight, followed by a squishy thunk, then a scream and a thud indicated that Vargas had entered the fray. The assassin rolled over and saw his employer crouched behind the table, the guard with the crossbow down with an arrow in his chest. He managed to feel a bit of hope. Vargas had saved his ass more than once, after all. Then he heard a shout of surprise, followed by a horrified scream from above. He turned his head just in time to see Vargas land head first on the floor after a fall from the scaffolding about 25 feet above. 
biting back another scream. This one of despair, the assassin turned his attention back to his former employer. He had regained his feet and was walking slowly toward him. <laughs> no, it couldn't end like this. He had tried to get away. But all he could manage was a slow and agonized crawl. It's no use, my friend. I have men at every door, said his employer as he approached. The assassin could see it was true, but he had to keep trying. All the same, he felt his limbs weakening, and he began to grow dizzy from blood loss. Gasping for breath, he managed to crawl another five feet or so before his employer reached him. Calmly placed his foot beneath the assassin's shoulder and kicked him onto his back. Another stab of pain fled through his side as the quarrel shifted in his wound. Looking up at Gomley and his employer, all the tales the assassin had heard from his parents and various clergymen about Deus and the judgment of souls in the afterlife came rushing to the front of his mind. He had always scoffed at such things, but now, facing his end, he felt an all-consuming dread. What if it were all true? Please, gasped the assassin, please, I need a priest. His employer, standing over him with his arms crossed, shook his head slowly. Won't do you any good, I'm afraid. Absolution requires confession and repentance. And you, my friend, have no time to prove your repentance with deeds. He stepped back and gestured for Gomley to proceed. The guard nodded and drew his sword. The assassin watched with helpless horror as Gomley plunged the blade into his chest. He didn't feel it, a small mercy. The world began to fade around him, and he felt deep regret that he had never really lived. Then darkness engulfed him, and his regret turned to terror as he perceived the first flickering of the flames awaiting him on the other side. So yeah, that was uh, the second or third short story I ever wrote. Um, it's a little, reading it now, I haven't read it a long time, reading it now it's a bit less refined than some of the stories I wrote later. Uh, certainly could do with more setting, uh, but at the same time I think the story is kind of cool. A uh, neat little uh, morality tale, if you will. A little bit of uh, uh, karma. And, you know, if I dare say, some kind of cool action. And, yeah. Anyway. So I like it. Hopefully you guys did too. Anyway, like I said, this is an experiment. See how all this works. And uh, if, it, if it turns out well, and if you guys kind of like it, man, yeah, keep doing it. Ow. Uh, well, let's be honest. If I like it, I'll probably keep doing it. And sooner or later, you guys will too. Thanks. That'll do it for this episode of Storytime with Michael Kingswood. Come by my website, michaelkingswood.com, for information about my work. There you can sign up for a newsletter where I tell about new releases and special promotions. Guaranteed to be spam-free. Or just drop me an email at michael at michaelkingswood.com and I look forward to hearing from you. If you really like my stuff and feel like giving me a buck, drop by Patreon and sign up to be a patron. As always, if you like today's story, be sure to leave a review on your favorite online bookstore and share this podcast with all your friends. This production is copyright at Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.